0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly McGrath, a senior campaign strategist specializing in voting rights and your host for the next few episodes as we close out 2021. On the podcast, we've chronicled some of the year's biggest stories. The insurrection, the rescinding of the Muslim ban, devastating police brutality, state after state attacks on the rights of trans kids the abusive system of conservatorships, and the rollback of abortion access, just to name a few. Today, we're going to follow up with guests on some of this year's most popular episodes to see what progress there's been since we last spoke and where there's still work to be done. This morning, Britney Spears possibly taking the biggest legal step yet to win back control of her life. In the highly anticipated hearing, a very assertive Britney Spears pleaded with the judge overseeing the conservatorship that's controlled the pop star's money and affairs since 2008. And Brit didn't hold back. In her June testimony, Britney Spears shared that under the conditions of her conservatorship, she was unable to buy anything, go anywhere, or even make medical choices about her own body. All of that power and control was in the hands of her father, Jamie Spears. Fans from all over the world heard her cry and began to demand change, joining the Free Britney movement. This ableist relic of the past had been forced upon Britney, just like it has been for around 1.3 million other Americans. Zoe Brennan Crone, a staff attorney at the ACLU's Disability Rights Program, is back to discuss what has changed in Britney Spears' case and how she was able to successfully end her conservatorship. Now, Zoe, since you last joined us all in July, a lot has happened on the Britney Spears conservatorship case, and we've all been seeing it in the headlines all summer and all fall. Can you give us what exactly happened at those hearings and what are the results? Britney's
1: testimony this summer really turned the tide because we're not in the business of trying to change arrangements that work for people. But once we knew this is what she is experiencing, and she does not want to be in this arrangement, and she feels very harmed and abused by this relationship and by this arrangement, then I think that really changed the dynamic of the court hearing. And I think it's really troubling that she wasn't heard on this, at least publicly, for 13 years, that this only happened so many years later, that, that finally we learned she wants out of this. And, and luckily,
0: she she was able to get out. And how does conservatorship influence, like in Britney's case, her ability to access a lawyer or what types of evidence that she's allowed to present in court? How does the conservatorship influence the process itself?
1: Yeah, conservatorships can really get people in a kind of a catch-22 bind because once you're under a conservatorship, you have lost your civil personhood in a way. You can't, in many cases, sign a contract. And so It can be very hard to hire a lawyer, a lawyer of your choice, even in the case of Brittany, who, of course, has enormous privilege, enormous wealth, that she was not able to choose her own lawyer until, until this summer. And the ACLU filed an amicus brief in that case to really highlight how important that choice is and that autonomy is that even if you're under a conservatorship, there are certain rights and certain preferences that you should still be able to exercise. But very often people don't know how to get out of a conservatorship. They're not given that information. And the information they do get is funneled through the conservator. And so if the conservator does not want to help you get out of the conservatorship, you're really stuck. And it's it's a very extremely uneven power situation. And that's inherently a really dangerous situation to be in.
0: Where can you share with us kind of the update on where Brittany's case is now and kind of the results here and what happened?
1: Yeah. So the week before Thanksgiving, there was a hearing when the judge dissolved Brittany's conservatorship. So she is she's free. She is no longer under a conservatorship. My understanding is that she's still working with folks to sort of untangle the impact of it and to figure out how things are going to go forward with her finances, things like that. But she has regained her civil liberties, her personhood, and it's great. It's really quite an amazing thing and very clearly what she wanted and what was the right outcome. The media attention around Brittany's case this summer has really focused, and rightly so, on the context of of her case, the broader context that Britney Spears's conservatorship was not an anomaly. It was very typical, and that really the most unusual thing about her case was the attention it was getting. But that it's estimated that 1.3 million people are in conservatorships and guardianships in the country, probably far more than that. And that there are many parts of the experience of Britney Spears that are very common and very routine. Of course there are parts of her case that are unique and her, you know, her wealth, her talent, her her privilege is unusual, but the experience of getting into a conservatorship and then spending 13 years trying to get out and not even knowing that that's an option for most of that time
0: is very typical. And that it's so true so not everyone is Britney Spears, not everyone has the type of access to the attention and the resources that was put into into highlighting what this issue is. And with kind of Brittany's success in mind, I mean, how much do you think that even our legal system um, might change in reacting to future conservatorship hearings? Is there any potential to, and is it a good thing to possibly abolish conservatorship as a whole? What's the solutions here?
1: Yeah, I, I think and I hope that this is a real moment of change and that the attention of this case and the recognition of how widespread the problem is, is really going to be a catalyst for ongoing change to the whole system. And there are changes we need within the conservatorship system to ensure that people have a right to a lawyer and that there's a way to get a lawyer to help you get out of a conservatorship and to ensure that lawyers advocate for the person's stated interest. So very often you have lawyers who, in these cases, who will say things like, well, my client wants to get out, but I think she should stay in. And that's a really problematic role for a lawyer to be in. And so we want changes that really identify what the role is of lawyers and what the due process protections are. But we also really want to expand this world outside of conservatorship and guardianship so that people with disabilities don't get funneled into these systems. That if you're a young adult approaching age 18 with intellectual disabilities, that the school doesn't tell you, you have to get a guardianship. And that's what happens now. There's a, it's called the school to guardianship pipeline, where schools very routinely direct families to seek guardianship and don't, explain all of the alternatives. And so we really want to expand the world outside of courts, outside of government and state involvement, where people can direct their own lives with support.
0: And working on the solutions here with all the attention to this, you were invited to testify in front of the Senate um, on conservatorships. Can you share a little bit about your experience there and any any hopeful outcomes you hope from that?
1: Yeah, so I testified at a bipartisan hearing of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee. Um, so it was jointly held by Senators Blumenthal and Cruz. And it's, there are not a lot of bipartisan things that happen in Congress these days. And the hearing was on, was called toxic conservatorships. It was a pun on a Britney Spears song, of course. Punny. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very powerful to hear the senators talking about these issues talking about supported decision making using these phrases to hear them thinking about and engaging with these issues in a really kind of meaningful good faith way part of that hearing also included testimony of a person with disabilities who had gotten out of a guardianship himself and also video clips of of several other i think 6 or 7 other people with disabilities from across the country who either had been in guardianship or had avoided guardianship and talking about how important that was. And that I found very moving to have that, to have voices of people with disabilities, including significant disabilities in the halls of the Senate being listened to by senators, by very powerful people who have not traditionally, you know, been offices where people with disabilities have have been included that felt very powerful to me and made me feel hopeful that there might be real change on this issue.
0: Awesome. When Britney's conservatorship ended, she got on social media and announced that she wanted to be an advocate for people with disabilities. What do you hope that she does with her platform and with her new freedom?
1: I mean, she's done so much with her platform already, even in the the weeks after getting out of her, her conservatorship. And I think I and many other people in the disability rights movement, people with disabilities were really excited and really heartened by her talking in this Instagram post about how she wants to, you know, to use her her experiences to help people with disabilities with mental illness who are who are caught in the same system that she is in. And I think, you know, she has every right to live her life quietly with nobody <laughs> bothering her about anything from what she's been through. You know, she has no obligations, but if she is interested in being part of this movement and working to to make changes systemically based on her experiences, we would love to have her.
0: Thanks for joining us, Zoe. Happy New Year.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Another hopeful story from this year, the rescinding of the Muslim ban. In January 2017, immediately upon taking office, then-President Trump signed a piece of legislation that would change the lives of Muslims seeking to emigrate to the U.S. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Amidst a national outcry and protests in airports and on the streets across the country, the ACLU fought hard to block the Muslim ban and was able to secure an early victory in the courts. Civil rights lawyers took the case to an emergency court hearing in Brooklyn, where a crowd of supporters gathered and
2: swelled into the hundreds. By late Saturday night, they had reason to celebrate. The judge, in a nutshell, saw through what the government was doing and gave us what we wanted, which was to block the Trump order.
0: After years and years of playing whack-a-mole with the Trump administration's efforts to block Muslims, the Biden administration finally granted a reprieve and rescinded the ban at the beginning of the year. Today, we're looking back at the episode we published ahead of Biden's inauguration day announcement When we interviewed Haya Bittar, a Syrian-American student whose life was deeply impacted by the ban. Since January, when you were last here on the podcast, a lot has happened. So first of all, it seems like a long time ago, it was just this year, the Biden administration did take office and within just mere days rescinded the Muslim ban. And so what did that mean to you? What did you make of that action?
3: We all breathed a collective sigh of relief. I mean, you know, for four years having that ban in place and then even before that, constantly facing barriers and obstacles to get, you know, the most basic form of a tourist visa. So to finally have the president by executive order saying, this is completely null and void. It's not going to happen. It's wrong. It's offensive. It's racist. And to have it just off the books, I mean, it was stunning. And a very welcomed order for us as a family and not just us, but the community as a whole. So it was definitely a really good, I think, start to the year for us. Absolutely.
0: And can you take us back a little bit to several years ago and when the Muslim ban was put into place? And how did that impact your life at that time?
3: So I am an American citizen, but my parents and my sister are not. They're just Syrian. And I have dual citizenships. So I have a Syrian passport, and an American passport, which enabled me to move to the U.S. by myself during my senior year of high school, which was 2017, 2018, during the beginning of Trump's uh, presidency, just so I could, you know, Study there. Hopefully, have a future there, uh, because you know, living in the UAE as a Syrian was just no longer a viable option um, for me as a as a young you know about to graduate, um, up and coming graduate. If that makes sense. But right at the beginning of the Muslim ban, my parents were you know we were just desperate to move. We had to move. We couldn't stay anywhere. Um And we found out that there was a special program, refugee program, that Canada was offering to Syrian refugees. And so, long story short, in the summer of 2019, we finally got the visa to immigrate together to Canada. And so we immigrated together. We, you know, we were reunited. We immigrated to um Canada and we've been here ever since. I want to emphasize that, you know, because of the Muslim ban, we had to seek refuge. And I think that that's significant because I think a lot of other people who... Um, have been affected by the ban have had to go through this option and some can't even seek refuge, you know, because they don't have access to passports or even airports or channels to migrate like Anwar, who was on the podcast as well when I was on. So Enwar is a Yemeni man who, through the diversity visa lottery, won visas for himself and his family. And this was, I mean, incredible considering at the time that he won, I think it was 2017 or 2018, you know, at the height of the Yemen war, which is currently still ongoing, a very devastating war. And so obviously he wants to immigrate to the U.S. and there was no U.S. embassy in Yemen. So he collected as much money as he can, sold his belongings, went to Djibouti and went to the U.S. Embassy there. And he was denied after having had paid all his dues, all his fees. He was denied because of the ban, because of the Muslim ban, although he won the diversity visa lottery. And so, I mean, he's back with his family now, but they're almost like living in limbo because they're in between they are They can't move to the U.S. yet. Because I think Biden has yet to reinstate the diversity visa winners from that, from the Muslim ban, you know,
0: period. What do you hope will happen for Anwar and other people who have diversity lottery winners?
3: Yeah, so Anwar, I believe he said that he's in a WhatsApp group chat with hundreds of other diversity visa winners from Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, just all over North Africa and the Middle East. They've been trying, you know, on Twitter, on social media, trying to get the attention of Biden's team, Kamala Harris's team, just any news agency that, you know, that would publish your story. And my hope for them is that the Biden administration sticks to their promises and reinstates the visas that they rightfully won. And additionally, you know, financially compensates them for the thousands upon thousands of dollars which they've had to pay out of pocket for visas that were never issued to them. So I really hope that, and I think this should be a, considering the state of war in Yemen at the top of Biden's list to re- to immediately reinstate their visas and have them um, relocated to the U.S. as soon as possible.
0: In addition to reinstating those visas, what would any meaningful progress look like in the Amemsa community? What What is your hope, um, not just with the Muslim ban or with the Muslim men, but all around, what would meaningful progress look like to you?
3: Sure. I think any meaningful progress would start, first of all, with the acceptance and recognition from the Biden administration or any administration that would come after him. There are several massive issues with our immigration system that allow this to happen in the first place, right? So even before the Muslim ban, like I said, in my own experience, my family, we were being denied visas left and right for no reason other than as we expect, because, you know, we're Syrian. So the Muslim ban was kind of like the cherry on top of a collection of disastrous, terrible gaps in the immigration system. So those gaps need to be fixed. They need to be filled in with meaningful immigration reform. So, for example, paths to citizenship, making it much easier financially, for example, like waiving these absurd visa applications, which, you know, alienates for people from the Middle East from applying to visas in the first place, reinstating these visas that were denied to all these people, paths to citizenship, you know, being honest with the community as a whole. And also what happens when you land in the US? Like what type of opportunities, what type of benefits are you given as a newcomer, for example? Like, do you have free access to public health insurance or school or university and just the such? So I think it's a massive overall reform of the system. And I think we won't get there unless there's actual recognition that there is a problem in the first place.
0: And like you said, we just have so much work to do to prevent.
3: We have so much work to do. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So since you joined in the January episode, besides all of this that has happened with your family and with the executive order, there's another personal update, right? Yes. You've gotten even more involved with the ACLU. Can you tell us how?
3: Yes. So... Another amazing thing to come out of this iconic episode was that I joined the podcast team as an intern. So, enjoying the summer, uh, so I started in the summer and I'm about to finish unfortunately at the beginning of December and it's just been an, an amazing experience. I I get to work with the most amazing producer ever, Kendall Seesmeyer and Aaron and it's just amazing and i get to you know help develop the episodes like write research writing scripting recording it's it's just amazing and i'm just so happy and i mean it's such a nice kind of not end to my aclu journey but kind of like a full circle moment i mean i started with the aclu advocacy program in 2017 i wrote into the aclu in 2018 I appeared on the podcast in 2021, and now I'm working behind the scenes, actually making the podcast. And now I'm on the podcast again.
0: And I know everybody is very grateful for all of your contributions.
3: Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) And finally, we're checking back in with Somo Trivedi. Senior staff attorney for the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. He joined us back in April to react to the wrongful murder of Dante Wright at the hands of the police. He'll tell us what has changed in Brooklyn Center and across the country to address the senseless killing and criminalization of unarmed black Americans. Oh, so the last time you were here was back in April, and at that time, this was just around. This was just around the aftermath of the murder of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center at the hands of the police, and on that episode. You talked a little bit about what could be done to mitigate these senseless deaths of black folks in America at the hands of police. And you commented that the best way to stop this was to make sure that folks like George Floyd and Dante Wright never came into contact with police in the first place. And can you remind us a little bit, what what did you mean by that? Police
2: and prosecutors and the justice system as a whole spends an inordinate amount of its time dealing with non-serious things. And by that, I mean 80% of criminal dockets on average around the country are spent on things like misdemeanors and traffic stops and other things that are called crimes, but can often be dealt with in more proactive um, and less punitive ways. So the murder of Dante Wright is a harrowing example where he was pulled over for having outstanding warrants for extremely ticky-tack things, one of them being having air fresheners dangling from his rearview mirror. And so he probably didn't need to be pulled over at all for us to enforce whatever public policy and we were trying to there. And of course, what happened is that that interaction escalated primarily by the police and Dante Wright ended up dead. What we can take from that and the very, very hopeful message that I hope people take at the end of a very harrowing year is that in that very town in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota this year, we passed transformative change around public safety and public health there, where police are now only part of a larger mix of interventions that we can deploy in Brooklyn Center depending on the gravity of the situation. And we created new rules and new policies to reduce the role of police in certain interactions and limit their ability to interact with people, to escalate situations, and ultimately to jail them. And that was done in collaboration with the mayor and police and prosecutors. And ultimately, we have a vision in Brooklyn Center that we can take around the country. And so that we should all take that lesson that Dante Wright's death, though tragic, and it should have been prevented in the first place, has produced this manifest
0: good. Let's focus in on that a little bit. So this is at a hyper local level, but a huge impact. So what will these changes look like in practice? And how did folks come about actually effectuating these changes and make it happen?
2: Yeah. So on a very practical level, let's say somebody is experiencing a mental health crisis, which is all too common in America. And it's because of systemic underfunding of mental health services, also issues related to poverty and homelessness. Right. We know the underlying causes. And yet we have decided by and large in in the United States to treat quote unquote mental health with criminalization, with policing, with institutionalization. right. Right. In Brooklyn Center going forward, if somebody is experiencing a mental health crisis, they will be treated by professional public health professionals, not police primarily. And this is actually continuing a trend across the country. There are several cities in the United States now that have intentionally devolved the response to mental health crisis away from the police and to trained professionals. And I think in a year where we saw a lot of downbeat news, frankly, about our progress on criminal justice reform, and I don't wanna sugarcoat it, we took a lot of losses. And unfortunately, the national narrative turned away from a lot of the hope that we had after the killings of George Floyd and Dante Wright and others. But behind the scenes or under the radar or at the hyper local level, like you're talking about, we're winning.
0: Yeah. What's the momentum here? Where is there hope next? Are there more cities on the block? Like you said, this is a template that can be replicated in other communities. And what is the momentum looking like there?
2: I think it's strong. Uh, we're going to take it to other places and towns similarly sized across the country as a proof of concept, and, and we hope we can grow it from there. And that's not the only point of momentum worth mentioning, by the way. I think lost in this larger national narrative, uh, a spike in violent crime and a turn away from uh, progressive uh, solutions to, to criminal justice, we've lost the fact that uh, there are lots of areas of hope. I mean, New York, for example, New York City just opened two safe injection sites for people to safely uh, use drugs and potentially get treatment rather than being criminalized, brutalized, and incarcerated. On their first day in office, I think they saved something like five lives. That is an immediate proof of concept that public health approaches to drugs are far more successful and far less harmful to communities than the war on drugs that we've been experiencing for the last 50 years. That happened in two days, right? And I could honestly go down the list, you know, after four years of the Trump administration being not just asleep at the wheel, but drunk at the wheel on civil rights and patterns and practices of police brutality, the Biden administration stepped in and immediately brought those back um, and reinstated consent decrees, right? after decades and decades of the police lobby being virtually impenetrable around politics, right? If the police lobby got involved in a race, you will you lose it. That's how American politics has gone. Larry Krasner in Philly took on the police lobby and won his reelection campaign. The same thing happened with a recall effort in LA with George Gascon. So again, I don't wanna sugarcoat things. It was a tough year. There were losses. But if we pay attention to sort of the national narrative, you would think that all hope is lost and it's not.
0: On the policy side, on the national side, you know, we're seeing this progress locally. What are you making of what can happen through Congress? What do you want to see happen? What's the likelihood, and what's your kind of your frustrations there?
2: Yeah, so Congress is an area of frustration. There's no way to get around it, right? The George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and related bills around criminal justice um, failed. They failed spectacularly, and we are incredibly frustrated. You know, with the momentum coming out of The protests in response to George Floyd's murder. We had momentum. We had an allegedly bipartisan group of senators working on a bill that initially had a lot good going for it. It was going to eliminate qualified immunity so we could finally hold officers accountable for brutality in civil court. Uh, It would reduce the amount of militarization involved in our local police forces. It could have ended no-knock warrants like the one that killed Breonna Taylor. Sadly, it was watered down over time. A lack of political will meant that that bill that could have been something great ended up being something that we couldn't even support. And so there is currently no effort to revive it, but there needs to be. And we are working hard every day to bring back the good elements of that bill and make them so. And I think we would want our template to be the things that we did in Brooklyn Center and we're going to do around the country. So that's the sort of connection between the local work and the national work. We know that there are models uh, that are effective on keeping public safety while respecting liberty and justice um, and taking a more holistic public health approach uh, to public safety. We know that there are models out there that work. Uh, we're going to prove them up at the local level and push them to the national level.
0: And on the kind of public opinion side where do you think the disconnect is you know numbers wise we know that it's popular for more investment in the community for those in mental health crisis or those with addiction and so why do we see why do we see kind of the disconnect with some of this movement and then some of the numbers that we see supporting the the reinvestment in the community it's
2: a great question and i think it's a victim of the generalized polarization that we see across issues in America, right? As soon as you talk about something in big broad strokes, people get into their camps and either oppose it whole hog or support it whole hog. And that's not helpful for such a nuanced issue like criminal justice reform. That is actually thousands and thousands of individual reforms that will eventually get us to the place we want to be. So what does that mean? You know, much like when Obamacare was being uh, debated in Congress. If you called it Obamacare, people opposed it. But if you talked about pre-existing conditions or keeping young people on their parents' health insurance, it pulled through the roof, right? So we need to go community to community and poll by poll and person by person and explain exactly what we mean by our vision of reform and show them examples of what works, exactly what you just said. Mental health responders, when you pull that individually, when you ask people, would you rather put people in mental health crisis in jail or get them treatment, treatment wins by a country mile, right? But when you include elements like that in larger discussions about policing and public safety, that gets lost and people reflexively oppose anything that's in a package like that. So I think that's a lesson for how we need to organize going forward, how we need to mm-hmm. message going forward, because, again, we do have momentum. People do believe in a lot of what we're saying. We just need to bring them to a point where they can support it.
0: It is. It's really about taking this local, organizing, and also it's, you know, not not just on this, but also I'd like you to talk a little bit more at the local level you know, right in folks own communities on the role of, you know, or the potential role of progressive prosecutor. What does that look like? And how do our DAs who are elected in major cities, how are they changing or how could they change the role of policing and the and criminal legal punishment in their communities?
2: This is a phenomenal question and a phenomenal example of how local organizing matters, right? DA races in America are largely not even contested. And even if they are, they're won by a few hundred or a few thousand votes here and there, right? But they have such outsized impact on our communities, right? They are the drivers of mass incarceration, and therefore they can be a part of the solution. So how are DA decisions driving police reform? You know, I mentioned that Larry Krasner won his election this year. That was against the police lobby. That immediately sends a message that we don't have to kowtow to what police want in order to run a district attorney's office. District attorneys across the country are deciding to stop charging low-level stuff like the misdemeanors I mentioned earlier, right? That has a feedback loop effect on police. If prosecutors aren't gonna charge it, police aren't gonna go out and look for it and arrest over it. Um, And then we're gonna reduce the number of police interactions in the street, which reduces harm, right? And finally, We're finally electing DAs who are willing to hold police accountable in the justice system for the harm that they inflict. This past year, you didn't hear a lot about it, but we finally got prosecutions against police who did wrong, namely Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. That's an important symbolic gesture. It's not justice. Justice is George Floyd alive today, but legal accountability brought by prosecutors against their partners in the police department is meaningful.
0: And that's something that, you know, I think a lot of times to the courts just seem like something that is for lawyers, but really it's up to all of us to organize, to shape our courts in that way.
2: Absolutely. The only reason that happened is because people in Minnesota elected the DAs and the attorney general who was willing to do that.
0: Can you talk a little bit, you know, we've gotten questions, it's been a hot topic this year, especially in the last few months, but on the different verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, um, we've seen verdicts now in the Ahmad Arbery case. You've been working in the criminal justice space for many years. What do you make of this it, and its kind of comment on our criminal justice system?
2: Yeah, it's a complex time for people in America to try to make heads or tails of all of these different verdicts coming down at the same time, and I understand that. On the one hand, there are people who are hurt by the fact that someone like Kyle Rittenhouse can come into a community legitimately protesting uh, police brutality and seemingly get away with what he got away with. On the other hand, we see uh, a verdict in the Ahmad Arbery case that gives us some hope that uh, outward vigilante racism will be held to account in a court of law. On the civil side, we saw the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville uh, be held accountable by, by a jury trial there, which again gives you some hope. But I, I want to make the larger point that individual sort of high-profile criminal trials are not the way that we should learn about the criminal justice system. And frankly, the trial-based criminal justice system is not the way we should fix our problems. And so if you're looking at Kenosha and the Rittenhouse trial as an indictment of you know, America's gun culture, then that's where you should get engaged, not in the criminal justice system. And if you're looking at the Ahmaud Arbery case as representative of systemic racism, let's fix systemic racism, right? These individual cases are going to disappoint and elate us in different ways that are not going to meld or cohere into something that we can take forward, because the criminal justice system is not the place for true justice. It's a place to work out individual cases as they occur. We need a functioning one. We need a fair one. We need one stripped of the racism that undergirds it. But if we want to make systemic change, we got to make systemic change outside of it.
0: Samil, I really appreciate you joining us and sharing an update. I want to ask two things. One, I'm going to make a big reveal to our audience and share with them that next month, you are going to be our podcast host for the month of January. Correct?
2: I very much appreciate that hype. Yes, I will try to do even <laughs> half a good as job as you.
0: Uh, and then, second of all, we are coming to the end of the year. It is next year's another federal election. It's a you know big election year, and folks are folks are exhausted. So I'm asking and want to ask you what keeps you going, what keeps you inspired to to continue to do the work that you do as we go into a new year.
2: You know, the theme of this discussion was organizing at the local level and winning when people think we can't win. That keeps me going. There are all kinds of reasons to pick out the losses and pick out the places where we're defeated. And again, we shouldn't whitewash those. Those are meaningful. Those are learning opportunities. But we win, too. And those wins keep me going. I hope they do to you, too.
0: They do. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year. Thanks. You, too. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support our fight in the year to come, you can donate by visiting aclu.org liberty. That's aclu.org liberty. We really appreciate your support. Until next week, stay hopeful.